Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. The Irish Film Festival kicks off today, streaming online rather than in cinemas, given the global pandemic that we're all living through. But as a result of it being online, it means perhaps that it's much more accessible to audiences around the country rather than you having to travel to a major capital city to see some of the films that are screening. One of the films at the festival is the documentary When Women Won, which documents the grassroots campaign over many years to repeal what has been described as a cruel amendment to uh, the Irish constitution, the Eighth Amendment, which forbade abortion except under extreme circumstances. Joining me on the line is the director of When Women Won, Anna Rogers. Anna, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This film, one of the things that fascinated me about watching it is the recognition that the campaign to repeal the Eighth Amendment, which the amendment itself being introduced back in the 80s, this wasn't just a campaign that ran for a couple of years and and was triumphant. It was the culmination of decades of campaigning by people in Ireland, especially women. Yeah, so the the story in the film, in a way, is a, a truncated version of with such an incredibly long history, you know. Um, people were campaigning, as you say, for decades. Um, Alva Smith, who features heavily in the film as one of the co-directors of uh, the, the team of Together for Yes, was campaigning for, for such a, a huge part of her lifetime. Um, and there were lots of organisations involved over those many years. So it was a very complex history. And, of course, very difficult to condense that down into one story or one film. Um, and, you know, we tried as best we could to, to, I suppose, capture a little bit of that history. Um, but there are so many things that happened from really you know, harrowing and dreadful things that happened over the years to Irish women. Um, and, and, of course, some really heroic people who, um, you know, came out and told their story at a time when I think it was probably a very brave thing to do and not a very popular thing to do in the early early years. So we owe a lot of those people a huge debt of gratitude. I think it's a testament to you as director that, as you say, that huge span of history, a very complex issue, is distilled quite clearly and cleanly in the documentary itself. There's a beautiful clip early uh, in the film, which uh, we then is repeated a little bit later on, uh, in which this campaign is described as a campaign that changed Ireland. How significant... For, for Australian audiences who may not be as familiar with the history of the Eighth Amendment in Ireland, how significant is that change? I think it's it's such a huge sign of the times. You know, I remember the night before the vote, just thinking, is it, is it possible that this is going to be a yes? I know we all felt that the night before the vote for marriage equality here, but there had been a, a groundswell of positivity and it really, you know, did feel like, you know, we were going to win marriage equality the two years prior. But for this amendment uh, to change and for, for, the, for people to vote yes for that amendment to change, it just seemed like the, the last, you know, the real fall of the grip of the Catholic Church in Ireland, the, the last thing to go in a way. I mean, obviously, there's lots of improvements to make in Irish society. We still have lots of problems here. Um, but at the same time, you know, to, to change this, it's, it's monumental. You know, the fact that it was still in place 
it had such a chilling effect um, on our maternity hospitals. I think any woman who had a baby in Ireland was always very conscious of of that law and, you know, what could happen to them as well, you know, in terms of their safety and well-being, you know, going through a pregnancy. And also just to be aware that you really didn't have the choice um, to, you know, over your your reproductive health um, and that if you did face that dreadful question, I suppose, in your life, that you wouldn't be able to be looked after in your own country, that you would have to travel to the UK. So we all grew up with the shadow of that. We all were so aware of that from the time we came of age and were teenagers here. Um, So it's it's really hard to describe (laughs) what a big impact it had. Um, You know, the, the meaning of it, the meaning of people voting yes, it was it wasn't about abortion for a lot of people. It was it was about women's place in society, and um, and it was it, it was a vote to tell us that that you know yes we we are equal citizens and yes we do have have rights and and yeah it's 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 hard to explain it but it was a hugely emotional moment for Ireland I think the documentary itself is also deeply emotional I cried several times watching it and other times I wanted to <laughs> pump my fists into the air and cheer you've mentioned the fact that uh, women had to 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 get access to abortion had to leave the country uh, after the referendum in 92 which results in something that was called Ireland's greatest hypocrisy abortion is okay just not here uh, the fact that you weave all these threads in, uh, you bring in the fact that this was a cross-generational campaign to, to make this change happen. I'm curious to know, what is it about documenting social change like this that fascinates you as a filmmaker? Because you've also worked on the film The Story of Yes, a documentary about the marriage equality referendum in Ireland. Well, I mean, these kind of stories, they have such a inherent drama and um, and I suppose they have a natural arc as well in terms of storytelling. Um, and, and they kind of bring in all that history so there's wonderful archive footage to work with. And usually the people that you interview in these films, they're incredibly passionate about what they, they've done. So... When we, we made the story of Yes, um, which, you know, it's the same team of us working together, my brother Hugh Rogers and my producer, Slata Filipovic, we all made that one together. And I think that was part of the reason that the three co-directors from Together for Yes came to us to do this, because they knew um, the type of approach we might take. So it, it is similar sort of film in a way, although with marriage quality we had been filming for years whereas with this one we didn't have any footage at all, so that was the big filmmaking that we had to overcome because we had to gather footage from lots of other filmmakers and lots of other people around the world. Using that archival footage gives a beautiful sense of the decades of activism that it took to get this referendum up and get it get it passed by people and then the more contemporary footage bringing in some of the the very powerful first person testimonials for example by women as part of the campaign uh, the the footage of volunteers in every county across the republic of ireland from large cities to smaller towns some of that footage is absolutely inspiring and, and hopeful yeah it's wonderful and it's, it's one of those things to, to kind of remind people to to always try and film um, if they're participating in something that's historic in a way because when you go to make these films oftentimes the local local smaller story or the rural story doesn't get told and we did find that part quite difficult because um, a lot of those things happened 
you know, very quietly, um, you know, the news channels didn't come down and do a report. There was nobody there to document it. And so it was very hard to capture the sense of the groundswell of, you know, ordinary people, men and women who went out day after day and campaigned. So I'm glad that you got that sense from the film because we really worked hard to try and communicate that. Um, But of course, so much of history just happens behind closed doors and you don't see the work that's done by the the quiet uh, people who are out in the the small little boreens and small roads of Ireland going knocking door to door and going out and talking to people day after day because that's what it takes to to change a law like that in Ireland, uh, you know, and it really was touch and go at times. And so it really was about um, people going out on the doorsteps and telling their own stories or telling stories of their sisters, their cousins, their friends, their mothers, and communicating to people what this really meant uh, and the impact on people's lives. That sense of uh, it, the campaign being touch and go uh, is evoked beautifully by the the acknowledgement at one point that the no campaign have already got their posters up well in advance of the yes campaign, for example. There's a, a sense of, of them perhaps lagging behind, and part of that was a lack of funding. So the sequence in which a crowdfunding campaign is launched uh, and raises 50 grand within, what, an hour or two hours of the the, the campaign, yeah. I think by, by 10am, that again, that sense of hope that the film captures, uh, which I think is especially embodied by the Home to Vote campaign, which expat Irish people returning to the country in order to, to have yeah. their say. So emotional. I think, you know, in both marriage equality story and in this story of repealing the eighth, I think that idea that people are, you know, motivated to get on a plane and come home to change the law is just so powerful. And we knew that we had to include that. And of course, there was wonderful footage there that had been captured by by another production company who really um, graciously allowed us to use their footage. It's just so brilliant, you know, to think, it, you know, symbolically, these people were making the same journey that women had had to make for for decades the other direction and they were all flooding home to vote yes to to make Ireland a better and a safer place for women and and girls and um, I think yeah for anyone who who leaves Ireland and lives abroad you you keep a, a huge connection with your country and sometimes people leave because of these very laws or because of a, a culture that maybe, you know, felt stifling or felt um, oppressive or, you know, that the whole Catholic culture and, um, you know, the control over women's lives. So many women left Ireland to go and, and start new lives in the UK or indeed in Australia. And, um, yeah, to come back and vote, it must have been a hugely, hugely um, emotional thing. And was certainly it certainly made a difference and... and yeah, it's wonderful to, to watch that scene in the film. That's definitely one of the, the tear-jerking moments for me as well. Of course, there's also the uh, just the tension of some of the, the later scenes as well, such as the, the scenes around the exit polls. There's uh, kind of... so the, the film is an emotional rollercoaster ride, but also a, a, a focused and finely controlled documentary. The film is called When Women Won. It's screening at the Irish Film Festival Australia, which this year is happening online. So from tonight... 
uh, through until the 29th of November is your window of opportunity to watch uh, When Women Won, directed by Anna Rogers. You can go to www.irishfilmfestival.com.au. Uh, and I believe, Anna, you're also going to be doing an online Q&A at some stage with the festival as well. That's right. So myself and Alva Smith, who, as I said, was one of the co-directors of Together for Yes, do a Q&A with Ender. And uh, so you can find out a little bit more about the story and, and get to know Alva a little bit more too. So it's, it's a lovely opportunity to chat to us afterwards. Anna Rogers, I very much enjoyed the opportunity to chat to you today. And I very much enjoyed watching When Women Won, which, as I said, is screening at the Irish Film Festival on from today until the 29th of November. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much, Richard. Take care. Every year, for several years, I've had the pleasure of catching up with Wesley Enoch, who is the Artistic Director of the Sydney Festival. He joins us on the line to talk about his fifth and final Sydney Festival, which, Wesley, means I'm going to have to find another excuse to get you on the show on a regular basis from now on. <laughs> well, if you need an excuse, yes, that's, that's always there. But I, I mean, it's like after five years of running the Sydney Festival, it's, it's always time to move on and get new fresh blood, which is great to have Olivia Ansel coming in as my successor. In terms of your approach to the Sydney Festival 2021, given the impact of the pandemic, you've got a local focus, an Australian focus. It must, I imagine, have been pretty heartrending to go up to the whiteboard and just wipe off all the international acts and not start again from scratch, but start with the Australian artists you had. The flip side of that is this is a fantastic opportunity for a festival like Sydney Festival to really throw its weight behind Australian artists in a way that it has done before, but this year, or next year rather, on a much greater scale. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think what, what I've tried to do at Sydney Festival, there's been a lot of commissions. Like last festival, we had 45 commissions. This year, we have 39. So in many ways, we haven't shrunk back too much from what our commitment to Australian artists is. And we did that process back in uh, March, you know, going to the whiteboard and wiping off the international names. And to be honest, I kind of felt, uh, not joy, but I felt a bit of a sense of saying, yeah, great, we can do what we value and really enjoy the most, which is supporting Australian artists to do Australian stories that mean something to us. And for, for me, this time of COVID has been really about bringing values to the fore. What do you value the most? And for us, it's been about commissioning new Australian works, about supporting through collaborative ways to to get new Australian works up there that really reflect, reflect us, that our First Nations program is still quite quite sizable. So, I mean, in many ways, the sense of supporting Australian arts, we're, we're putting over $6 million into the hands of Australian artists and venues and companies during Sydney Festival, and I think, you know, get on. Some of the Australian artists that will be featuring, for example, there's a, a new work by one of my favourite contemporary circus companies in the world, Gravity and Other Myths. Now, yeah. they have three troops which are usually touring the world constantly uh, and have, because of COVID, been grounded in Adelaide collectively. So this new work, The Pulse, brings all three troops together to create a work of significant scale featuring, what, 30 acrobats? Yeah, the number changes a little bit, but uh, I've still got 38 acrobats on my list of how many people are coming over, plus then a choir of 25. So you start to go, okay. And they've been using JobKeeper during all this period of time, which I'm really excited about. You know, 
So, like, some people just get the job keeper and go, oh, well, thank goodness, and I can just stay at home. But, in fact, artists around the country have been using JobKeeper to make new work, and here's a really good example of it with Gravity on the Mids. And they're performing on a venue that we're making called The Headland, which is at Barangaroo Headland, an outdoor performance space that will hold 1,500 people in a COVID-safe spacing. And we found, too, people are really keen to be outdoors and to be part of it. So this headland adventure that we're doing is one of those things, you go a big stage with the Sydney Harbour Bridge and the harbour as your backdrop. And you're there watching 17 nights of performances throughout the Sydney Festival. So, And Gravity and Other Myths is going to be part of that. Also on that headland stage, you've got uh, the Sydney Symphony Orchestra performing, for example. You've got a real broad range of artists, which, and as you say, to, to be presented in a COVID-safe way. Tell us about the internal conversations that have gone on around explaining and showing to audiences that they will be safe to attend the festival. Yeah, and I, I mean, you have to remember too that Sydney has had a very different approach, I think, during some of these um, COVID times where even when we do spike, and stuff, there's a sense of saying, okay, well, we'll lock down certain areas or we'll do special testing and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but So there's a, a kind of different atmosphere in the streets and, and restaurants and cafes and things in Sydney. And so we see two groups of people, those who now are hyper-aware and hyper-scared, perhaps, of being outdoors, and those who are kind of very gung-ho, out they go, you know, licking doorknobs if they want to get anywhere. And so for me, it's really about trying to say to people from both sides of those extremes, here's a place where you know the rules are really clear, they're, they're up front, they're, 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 we're going to look after you. And here's a really interesting thing. Our first instinct was to make that whole stage free, just because, you know, to allow access. And it was interesting because the, the advice coming back to us is saying, you know, if you make something free, then roughly about a third of the audience doesn't turn up on the night for whatever reason because it's free. But if you do a little charge, and we're going to be charging $25 a ticket, regardless of whether it's Bangara, Sydney Symphony Orchestra, Gravity and Other Myths, um, Paul Mack, you know, this idea of $25 is enough to say, yep, I will turn up and I will make sure because, because once we allocate a ticket, once we allocate a seat, that actually, because of contact tracing, we cannot give that seat away. So if you don't turn up, it's a wasted opportunity for for people to watch the work. So this little nominal fee is is part of that uh, contract, if you like, to make sure people turn up and and enjoy the work that's there and not take the opportunity away from someone else. I don't know if audiences will be licking doorknobs, for example, but (laughs) but for the the more gung-ho audiences who are less concerned, less paranoid perhaps about COVID, there's one event that you've programmed in the festival uh, in which uh, you put on other people's shoes and you walk around (laughs) and you you literally walk in their shoes and you hear their stories. I got to experience this work at Perth Festival several years ago and it's a simple concept, but it's so it's it's a sublime and, and gently moving piece of art. Yeah, we're working with the National Maritime Museum on this one. There's a whole narrative that we're forming around migration uh, with the National Maritime Museum, this idea of people understanding others as you literally book in, you get a pair of shoes that have been Glen 20 within an inch of their life, (laughs) and make sure that you put them on, and you put some headphones on and you, you, you walk a mile listening to their story. And we think that it's a wonderful thing, our First Nations program and this idea of people coming from other places to be in Australia is also important. So understanding others uh, in many ways. And that, you know, a beautiful place down near Darling Harbour to walk around and to get a sense of 
what it means for these stories, for us all to own these stories. I mean, when you think 42% of Australians were either born overseas or have a parent born overseas, and I think that number's even higher than that now, there's a real sense that we do have a very strong migrant narrative, and let's, to have a piece of art um, created uh, around this is great. If we're talking about people who come from other places, that notion of connection and community is something I wanted to pick up on, for example, uh, in the work Hide the Dog, which is a collaboration, a trans-Tasman collaboration between a Maori playwright and a Palawa First Nations playwright from what is now known uh, by many of us as Tasmania. And this, I'm a... Are they the same same two playwrights who previously collaborated on Black Tie at this year's festival? No, different playwrights. But um, I think that you get the sense of Aboriginal Australia First Nations Australia and First Nations New Zealanders Aotearoa, the sense of what we have in common and how we can share is similar to Black Tide. Nathan Maynard, who's the Palawa writer, and James McCaskill, who's from who's Maori writer from Aotearoa, the sense of their collaboration was really about something for their kids as well, saying uh, an Aboriginal kid, a Maori kid live on the same street and they build a canoe together to visit and talk to the spirits and gods of both their cultures. And Hide the Dog gets its name from the thylacine and the idea that the spirit of this Tasmanian tiger um, arrives and they have to work out what they do with it. And so they go on a bit of a journey to understand what it means to look after the future. If we're speaking of spirits, then we should also mention uh, Bangara Dance Theatre. Yes, in the headlands again, Bangara doing its 30th anniversary show, a bit of a retrospective of some of the work. This is the work that we very rarely see in Australia because this is uh, an amalgamation of some of the works that they take overseas to give a sense for for the first time often uh, for people who are... Uh, experiencing Bangara for the first time overseas. And so they're putting it together. They say, this is their Canadian show. And I go, what does that mean? They say, it tells the story of the last 30 years of Bangara. So if you've missed some of the work they've done uh, recently, you can catch up, if you like, with these little snippets of some fantastic uh, uh, ensemble dance works of Bangara. And uh, can I tell you now, that's the fastest-selling show that we've got in our program. We've only been on sale for a week, and already we're at, I think it's about... Um, 18% of our target. So tickets are flying out the door at the moment. I'm not surprised. Bangara are national treasures after all. And to see a retrospective Indeed. like this is a is a rare opportunity. Uh, if we're talking about dance and physical theatre, then we should also acknowledge that there's a, a brand new dance theatre work from Force Majeure in the program. Force Majeure being one of the, the unique Sydney companies. Indeed. And people will know this company from, oh, so many different works. This work, actually, the wonderful Pamela Rabe, Melbourne resident Pamela Rabe, is coming into this work as well as Paul Capsis and um, Olwen Furrer. And they play different seasons in the idea of um, the four seasons of the year. Uh, except spring is played by an ensemble of youth dancers. So this wonderful sense of summer, spring, autumn and winter being played out by personifications of those people and I've seen some of the workshop footage of the work and it's just stunning beautiful writing and amazing performance work and these performers like when you think about Paul Capsis and, and Pamela Rabe in particular you go these are senior performers with great power and to watch them move and bring their kind of performance energy is just fantastic and that'll be at Carriage Works and it's great to have Carriage Works come through this COVID period and strengthened their position very much in the in the Sydney art scene after a period of administration. So it's great to have them on board. Something else that you've got on board and one of the plays that I've been looking forward to for 
Ooh, I can't remember uh, how long ago I saw it being pitched as a work in development, but Sunshine Supergirl, <laughs> a, a, a theatrical yes. celebration of the, the the life and career of Yvonne Goolagong, which uh, I understand for its staging, it's uh, uh, you're transforming the Sydney Town Hall into a tennis court in order to bring this work to life. That's right, and we've had a bit of a history in the last few years of transforming Sydney Town Hall. People remember counting and cracking with Belvoir Street, an amazing kind of transformation of that space and black ties where we turned it into both a, a theatre and a reception room um, and this time we're turning Sydney Town Hall into a tennis court and 2021 is the 50th anniversary of Yvonne Gulagong first winning Wimbledon and Touchwood because of the border closures hopefully Touchwood that um, Yvonne this will be the first time she gets to see the play as well come down to Sydney so we're looking forward to that. The Sydney Festival 2021 is running from the 6th to the 26th of January and for culture starved Melburnians it's going to be one of the first opportunities to fly interstate and dive headlong into a program of exciting new Australian work covering a range of art forms we've only scratched the surface but Wesley look uh, the final word to you in terms of encouraging Melburnians to come up and and attend the festival. Is a weekend going to do justice or should they come up for a week? (laughs) Well, I think Destinations New South Wales would be saying come up for the whole month. That's what we really want you to do. Look, I think that... um the best thing is to get online and check out what's on offer. I mean, a, a weekend, a three-day, four-day weekend would give you a kind of taste of what's on offer. We've got longer seasons, too, because of COVID and, and the, um, the limited capacities of venues. They are much longer seasons, so chances are, you know, a four-day weekend, you can get a, a lot crammed in. The best way is to get online and check out the website, sydneyfestival.org.au. Um, or just Google Sydney Festival and look at the program. It's quite big. It's a lot of stuff. If anything, the middle weekend is good. There's lots of contemporary music on as well. I will have to look at my diary, look at my bank balance, <laughs> and look at your website and start doing some programming. Wesley Enoch, Artistic Director of Sydney Festival, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Richard. Now it's time for us to talk about the Melbourne Fringe Festival, a festival very dear to my heart. And in particular, we're going to talk about the show What Would John Hughes Do? Created by Tilia Neville, who joins us on the the line now. Tilia, a very good morning to you. Good morning. So what would John Hughes do? Uh, I get the feeling you're somebody who grew up watching, I don't know, uh, The Breakfast Club and Pretty in Pink and many other films of that ilk. I mean, John Hughes was a pretty foundational filmmaker for a generation. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. He was the first one who really started to take teenagers seriously because there'd been, like, Rebel Without a Cause, which was the first time that they sort of recognised that teenagers actually existed. But then it was, like, Porky's and Animal House and stuff, until John Hughes, when he actually started to take the stuff that feels so huge when you're a teenager seriously and give it airtime. You've created this show. Now, I've seen a fair bit of your work over the years, spoken word performance and poetry mixed with theatre and monologue and theatrical devices and some music all mixed up together. What's this show like? Is it, is it a theatre work? Is it a cabaret? Is it a spoken word performance? Is it stand-up? Is it somewhere at an overlapping spot between them all? Um, it's kind of, it's a punk cabaret um, with lots of storytelling in it. So lots of sort of, this is the rawest show I've ever made and it's actually me being myself on stage instead of being a character. So yeah, it's a lot of me. Is, that, <laughs> is, it, is that intimidating? Yes, 
Yeah, it's um, it's really scary uh, to be yourself on stage. It's a beautiful thing, and I can't wait to actually share it with live audiences. But it is, it's a stretch for me, and I'm really excited about that. Now we'll come to the live audiences versus digital audiences thing <laughs> in a moment. But talk to us about why you've decided to stretch yourself as a performer and do a show as yourself, rather than creating one of the several characters that you've uh, performed as in the past. I kind of feel like with every new show, it's a chance to sort of try something that you haven't done before or to extend something that you did a little bit of but haven't really fully explored. And I kind of figure that if it's not scaring you, then you're not pushing hard enough. So in terms of this... um, Oh, sorry, keep going. Oh, no, no, go ahead. You were saying something. I don't want to be rude. I both love and hate scaring myself, and I figured this would be the most effective way of scaring myself stupid. That's fair enough. Now, I I mean, any live performance is intimidating, but it certainly does seem that to have a character between you and the audience, so your Poet Laureate character, for example, (laughs) is a filter that allows you to be larger than life, stripping that character away to just be yourself. Talk to us about the artistic challenges of writing this show. Were you constantly having to stop and remind yourself, no, it's not time to be larger than life now, it's time to 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 pull back rather than to expand i think the main difference for me was that it's i've always sort of gone brutally honest behind a character because you know it's safe it's the character uh so you can say stuff that you think that's horrible or inappropriate um and that's fine but what i needed to sort of constantly remind myself of doing this show was that it's scary being fully honest as yourself but that's what makes it good that's what makes it you know available for other people to connect to and to engage with so you know more honesty be more honest no admit that thing that you're ashamed of no don't pull back here that's the coward's way out so yeah it was all about honesty uh, and pushing and if we're being honest, to what extent did the films of John Hughes, to come back to the, the title of the show, to what extent did those films perhaps warp your expectations of how life would be, how romance would play out, how friendships uh, would, would last or linger? Were these films um, helpful or did they in some ways distort the world that you were expecting to live in? They were really helpful in that they were sort of a a really beautiful, accessible reminder that it's okay to feel weird or to feel out of place, um, that you're not alone, that other people feel that way. Uh, But it did warp my expectations quite a bit because when I got to high school, um, the fact that we didn't have um, showers after gym was a little bit of a jarring thing for me because I'd grown up watching American movies where everybody showers after gym. Uh, I remember being super excited that I finally had my own locker and a little bit disappointed that it had a padlock with a key instead of a combination lock. Um, I I always wanted sort of a, a, a prom and instead we had this sort of dinner dance at the Country Comfort Inn at the end of high school. Um, so I kind of... I had in my head all of these American milestones that just never really happened. So in that way, it was a little bit disorienting because I went to school in Canberra uh, in quite a new school um, and it looked completely different 
but emotionally they were, I think, very helpful. What's it like revisiting those films now? Because I would imagine that you rewatched some of them to, to write this show. Molly Ringwald, for example, uh, who made a number of films with John Hughes uh, a couple of years ago, wrote about her revisiting and reviewing those films through the, the lens of Me Too and suggesting that perhaps some of the the gender politics, the sexual politics of those films now worry or concern her. She wasn't as as aware of the nuances uh, at the time uh, that she is now. Have you rewatched them and, and how did you find that experience of viewing them now? I've rewatched them so many times I can kind of play them in my head. Uh, this, yeah, 16 Candles is the most jarring because it's got quite a lot of rape culture in it and some extreme racism used for jokes but even at a smaller level some of the sexual politics that play out in pretty in pink or some of the sexual harassment that's in the breakfast club um it's it's all pretty disturbing but it when i first started watching it it didn't even like i, I didn't even register it and now i feel the need to sort of preface when i'm talking about one of these movies that those things do exist, that they are in there, that people do need to sort of arm themselves a little bit for them. But I love them so much that the the emotional value that I found in them is still there. It's one of the fascinating things, isn't it, about revisiting those key works that have helped shape who we are, those foundational texts, whether they're literal texts as in the form of a novel or a film or, a, or an album or so forth, that... On one level, we look at them through a nostalgic lens and they evoke the way we felt when we first experienced them. And simultaneously, it, it's almost like wearing bifocal spectacles and having two different kind of views because you are simultaneously re-evaluating them and sometimes that the, the nostalgia can be permanently or fatally tinged. It sounds, though, as if in creating What Would John Hughes, a punk cabaret about teen movie-induced expectations and the real experiences that follow, that you still celebrate these films, you still honour them, and that has informed not only the person you are, but the show that you've created for Melbourne Fringe. I do, and I, I'm really interested in that push-pull inside that's, that's happening for a lot of people right now with, say, Harry Potter and J.K. Rowling, like that question inside you about how far you can separate the art from the artist and whether you should separate the art from the artist and whether you can still keep the value that you found in things while acknowledging all of the the pain that it can cause other people and while honoring that it's a really hard question and it happens over and over and over like Picasso or Woody Allen or Kevin Spacey it's a real wrestling match inside because these things You've grown up with them and they mean a lot to you and they talk to you in sort of a really deep level. But you also are now aware of another layer that's sort of added in over the top of that. And it's it's a really difficult conversation, but it's a conversation that's really valuable to have. And as equally difficult, I imagine that idea of embodying that conversation truthfully and emotionally, honestly, uh, as you're, you're doing with this new show. As you've said, you're performing as yourself rather than as a character. You've stripped away the layers of artifice to to create something, what, rawer and more truthful? Yeah. It's not all about John Hughes. I was a teen movie addict from way back, so I've watched 
all of them uh, many times. Um, so it's it's a lot of it is about the intersection between reality and fantasy and the difficulty that that I have telling one from the other sometimes. But yeah, there is a part in there about trying to reconcile yourself to the extra layers that you start noticing as you get older or as you learn more or as you expand into the world and those layers starting to fight against each other. You mentioned earlier that you're really looking forward to performing What Would John Hughes Do Live? You're presenting the show as part of Melbourne Fringe Festival's Digital Fringe platform on Saturday the 21st at 8.30pm, Sunday at 6.30pm and then uh, the following week, Monday through to Wednesday at 7.30pm. People can yeah. find out full details at melbournefringe.com.au. Tell us about the the experience of making a work for a digital audience, particularly at a time perhaps when some of us are now struggling. I, I know I'm certainly struggling with the with interacting on work through a screen rather than live. Yeah, it's been really hard and very weird watching some people pivoting and exploring new avenues and other people staying true to um, the fact that they, they just, that's not in them right now. It's been really weird because I haven't done a streamed performance since 2011. And I, I keep on thinking about this season in the way that I would think about a physical season in terms of sort of performing on Saturday night and then sort of regrouping and performing on Sunday night. But it's an adventure. It's a brand new adventure. And we're all sort of reaching out for connection right now. Any way that we can engage in the arts and engage with each other and and develop a sense of community while we are still going through this bizarre, surreal year. It's certainly been bizarre, uh, but it is hopefully creating some great art. Telia Neville's What Would John Hughes Do uh, is streaming online as part of the Melbourne Fringe Festival's Digital Fringe platform this Saturday and Sunday. So Saturday at 8.30pm, Sunday at 6.30pm and then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday at 7.30pm. And as I said, you can find out the times and booking details at melbournefringe.com.au. What Would John Hughes Do? A punk cabaret about watching too many movies created by my guest Telia Neville. Telia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a lovely conversation. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Triple R. Elias Redstone is the Artistic Director of Photo 2021, a new international festival of photography, which was supposed to happen earlier this year, but as everything suddenly ground to a halt because of COVID, Photo 2020 also paused. Uh, Elias, how challenging was it to rethink, revisit the festival and just push it back by a year? Good morning, Richard. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Yes, we were one day out from announcing our full program for the festival in March. We were about to have a big event at the Government House when we realised that COVID was bigger than we initially anticipated, and we pressed pause on a festival. That was going to be the most uh, expansive photography festivals Australia has ever seen. And after a series of long calls uh, to lots of partners on a Sunday morning, we realised it was actually possible to pick up a festival that was going to be happening in a few weeks and with the support of the arts industry here in Melbourne and across the state we were able to move it back and it will be taking place uh, pretty much as originally conceived 
coming up on the launch on the 18th of February. Which is pretty remarkable given the, the for people who don't work in the arts industry, the, the amount of work that goes on behind the scenes to get a festival up is pretty phenomenal. So to have to cancel, rethink and reprogram uh, for 2021... Congratulations to you and the team that you work with on getting that up. And also, I have to say, great that the festival's many partners were like, yeah, we can take this in our stride. Sure, let's just... We've already probably already got three quarters of 2021 <laughs> program, but we can yeah. find a gap. It was absolutely amazing. It really showed how the arts industry comes together at these times and it can be incredibly supportive of each other. But most importantly, it was to support the artists is really why we pursued with this. You know, there are over 120 artists um, from around the world, half of them from Australia, half from different countries, most of them presenting new work that no one had ever seen before, several new commissions, lots of projects that were being um, uh, no, exclusively premiered in Australia by international artists. And everyone's been working so hard on this that the idea of just canning it was just, uh, it was just not a possibility. So, um, uh, Despite it being almost a year late in the planned, we're looking forward to bringing all these artworks, most of them on, you know, will be exhibited on the streets of Melbourne to the public in February. Why do we need a festival to celebrate contemporary photography? That's a great question. I mean, for me, photography is kind of the medium of our age in a way. It's being used every day by everyone for, you know, for for, well, for personal reasons, political reasons, photography is everywhere. Um, and this is an opportunity to pause and look at the role it plays in our lives and to think about it through the lens of photographers and artists and be inspired by them to think about issues of global significance through their work or even just think about the kind of photos that we make ourselves and be inspired by what other people are doing. One of the things that fascinates me, I guess, is that on one level you could almost argue that photography is an oversaturated medium because, as you say, uh, we all of us, many of us at least, take photos every day, whether they're selfies, whether it's just a snap of something quirky that we see on the street that we chuck up on Facebook or Instagram. We live in, a, in a, an image-saturated age. Uh, so does that then make a festival like Photo 2021 redundant? Or does it, in fact, encourage us to not only look critically at our own photos, but to look at what the medium is capable of? I mean, for me, it's all the more reason that this is, you know, more essential now than ever before. Uh, photography is, uh, you know, we're inundated on a daily basis. So what we're doing is bringing the very best artists and photographers from around the world and bringing world-class art to the people here in Melbourne. So we're showing artists that are more traditionally shown in the Museum of Modern Art in New York or uh, present at Tate Modern in London and, uh, and doing sort of large-scale presentations uh, in the city of Melbourne. Uh, and bringing, it, bringing these works uh, to, you know, in a really accessible way, in a really democratic way to 
public spaces to unexpected sites, to streets and laneways. Uh, there'll be works built up in Argyle Square. There'll be works outside the Parliament of Victoria, outside St Paul's Cathedral. There's a whole programme being curated through the Royal Botanic Gardens of artists responding to uh, to their particular site and the history of the gardens. So it's creating stuff that's quite un, you know quite spectacular and unusual. And I think photography is also really important to Melbourne as a city. There's a, there's a real culture of photography here that perhaps goes underappreciated. You have some incredible galleries dedicated to photography, like the Centre for Contemporary Photography and the Monash Gallery of Art. You have huge collections at the NGV, at the State Library, at uh, Museums Victoria. And this is an opportunity for all these different institutions, large and small, to come together and create something that is much bigger than the sum of its parts, a real sort of um, you know, world-class festival of photography uh, that will be probably one of the most important programs of its kind in the Southern Hemisphere. And it, gets, it gives Melbourne a chance to really lead the way and shine a spotlight on Melbourne, you know, once more as being this capital of photography with a large-scale biennial program to, uh, to, to mark that. The festival in 2021, uh, Mm -hmm. one of the things I wanted to unpack a little bit, there's the old analogy that we know now is deeply untrue. The camera never lies, they claimed, when the camera (laughs) was invented. Uh, But you're using that or perhaps referencing that by using the theme, the truth, for photo 2021. Absolutely. The truth is such a apparently easy thing. You know, surely we know what the truth is. Uh, but uh, kind of in this age of post-truth, an age of Photoshop and sort of facial filters and artificial intelligence, um, what could be more complicated? So photography has always had this interesting relationship with the truth since, you know, the dawn of the medium. Um, you know, it's inherently subjective. But, you know, perhaps now more than ever, it is even more so. And we can only look at some world events, you know, Trump's inauguration, you know, the scandals around the photos of that, you know, in history. Um, Dictators have airbrushed people out of images uh, to pretend that they were never there. Um, We use, you know, Instagram on a daily basis and, you know, change the way we look, change the way our food looks. So the idea of, of truth and photography is, is incredibly um, nuanced. Um, and all the artists, all the exhibitions of the program are responding to it in really challenging ways. So, for example, the uh, Australian-Iranian artist Hoda Afshar is doing a new commission that looks at the experiences of whistleblowers in Australia, people have blown the whistle, told the truth, uh, you know, against the government, against aged care establishments or um, uh, the military, and they've been using uh, their voices to tell the truth, and she presents this in a photographic project. Uh, we're bringing over for the first time um, uh, artist duo Broomberg and Shannon's project, which is called Spirit is a Bone, where they... Um, have used facial recognition software that was developed for surveillance in Moscow to create a whole series of, um, of portraits uh, of, uh, of contemporary citizens, unaware that they were even being photographed in the first place. So the ideas of truth are kind of really linked, for me, to ideas of sort of control and power and freedom. 
Um, and it's going to be fascinating seeing how all these artists are responding and how, you know, the questions that it raises about the way we use photography on a, on a daily basis. Elias, you mentioned that the festival's commissioned uh, Hoda Afshar. There's a number of commissions uh, that the festival uh, has made of both Australian and international artists, I understand. Correct. So there's been 30 new commissions across the festival programme. Uh, several of these are actually going to be presented on um, large-scale hoardings in partnership with Metro Channel Creator Program. So we're commissioning both local and international artists there from some emerging First Nations artists, a, a gentleman called uh, Alan Stewart, who's looking at the landscape around Melbourne, to um, artists like Sam Contis, who earlier this year was being presented at, at MoMA in New York, um, and, and many others. And they're creating mostly new work that's going to stretch over 500 metres of hoarding spaces across the city, uh, from Parkville down to Domain. I love the fact that... Uh, Given that photography is, as we said earlier, something that is available to all of us uh, with smartphones and uh, and contemporary devices, that the festival is acknowledging that by a democratic public display of photographic art across the city so that you don't have to travel to a specific gallery to see it. You can see art freely and easily as you wander the streets of the city. Absolutely. The whole festival is really conceived as a festival of exploration, so you can walk around and see things. And it breaks down some of the barriers between sort of art and citizens. So, for example, we've commissioned Eliza Hutchison, who's a local artist, to be a photographer in residence at the Parliament of Victoria. So they've allowed her onto the floor of Parliament while it's sitting, which I believe is the first time an artist has done so. And she's made this whole new work uh, looking at how Parliament is kind of mediated through photography and uh, how we consume it. And that's going to be presented as a as an installation outside Parliament on the streets, uh, on, on Spring Street, uh, on the steps of Parliament, uh, for anyone to see. And the idea is that you can walk through the city, come across works that are you know either intimate or large scale, and then you can dip into galleries from artist-run spaces like... Um, like West Space uh, to commercial galleries um, up through large institutions and unexpected sites uh, that don't perhaps traditionally commission art, like the Immigration Museum that's uh, invited um, a Tonga Tem, he's a South Sudanese Australian artist, to do these huge mural-sized portraits that are actually, I believe, open now and will be running through the festival. The programme for Photo 2021 was launched just the other day, the festival itself running from the 18th of February until the 7th of March 2021. You can find out more info at photo.org.au. Other aspects of the programme are still to be revealed, including a public programme of events and speakers for photo ideas and photo live. You can keep an eye on the website and uh, more details for those events will be announced in early 2021 but right now if you jump online and go to photo.org.au you can find out some of the details about photo 2021 a new international festival of photography coming to melbourne next year i've been chatting to elias redstone the artistic director of photo 2021 again photo.org.au for details elias thank you so much for joining us here at triple r richard thank you have a great day Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. 
Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 